Okay, can I have you open your Bibles with me to the book of Exodus chapter 21. Exodus 21. And as we work our way through the book of Exodus, we find ourselves almost at the halfway point. And we haven't met in a few weeks because I was with my grandkids. So there. I don't, I don't, I don't apologize for that. So, but I did miss you guys. Good to be back. Um, as, we, as we come to Exodus 21, uh, we've entered into a section where God is giving uh, laws on a variety of, of subjects. And uh, last time we got as far as uh, Exodus 21, verse 14. So just launching right in, Exodus 21, verse 15. God said, And he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. You say, wow, that's pretty harsh. Uh, yeah, it is. And it is for a reason. See, God knew that the health of a society is built on a respect for authority. And that starts in the home with respect for parents. God wanted parents to be revered by their children because he knew that if children respected their parents when they grew up to be adults, they would respect authority at every level of society and in government. And that would lead to a law-abiding and peaceful society. Conversely, as respect for authority begins to decline, so the chaos and anarchy of a society begins to escalate. Aren't we seeing that in the news? And this is the breakdown of our society, and I don't think anything we do is going to change it except cry out to Jesus to bring revival. And I encourage you to do that. But um, verse 16, he who kidnaps a man and sells him, uh, or if he is found in his hands, shall surely be put to death. Now, as we've already pointed out, this law was especially directed at those who would kidnap another human being for the purpose of selling them into slavery. So human trafficking in God's law carried with it a death sentence, a death sentence. God uh, restated this in Deuteronomy 24, verse 7, when he said, If a man is found kidnapping any of his brethren of the children of Israel and mistreats him or sells him, then that kidnapper shall die, and you shall put away the evil from among you. Now again, as we've pointed out as we've been going through these laws, some of these laws seem very harsh, especially because we are living at a time when so many are really giving those who are lawbreakers a pass. Uh, I, I think that in the name of love and, uh, and, and tolerance, or whatever you want to call it, uh, many who are deserving of punishment are getting off. I know our prisons are very crowded, and there are those who are saying, well, the laws are too harsh. Uh, we need to cut some people a break, and so on and so forth. I think we're cutting a lot of people a break. That's the problem. I think that as God has stated these things, and uh, they come across very uh, definitive, very, uh, in some people's minds, harsh, God knew that the evil in the human heart, if not restrained through strong laws, would run wild and create a situation where innocent, law-abiding people would be terrorized in their own neighborhoods, their own communities, by those who are lawless. And we're seeing that. I mean, these poor folks in the south side of Chicago, they can't even go out of their houses. 
These poor kids can't even go out on their porches without fear of a stray bullet uh, taking them out. This is a tragedy and a travesty. And we need stronger policing. Yes, I understand that we do need community policing and we need, and I think Chicago is trying to enact some of that. I could be wrong, I think they are. Uh, community policing, where the police are uh, walking the streets, talking to people. That's the way it should be. Right? We should be a community where everyone's working together, that the, the cops are not our enemies. All right? I don't feel that way, but there are many who do and so on and so forth. So, so God was very definitive here. And, uh, and he knew if he didn't lay down some very strict laws, uh, the result would be uh, chaos, anarchy, and uh, uh, violence in the streets. Verse 17, And he who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Now, it sounds similar to the one we just looked at. But he who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Um, the curse was not a cuss word spoken by uh, a um, teenager, we'll say, against uh, a parent in a moment of anger. Uh, the Hebrew has no cuss words. You can't swear in the Hebrew. They don't have any swear words. Okay? If you're Jewish, you got to swear in English. Okay? <laughs> we got plenty. But this is talking about any child, adolescent or adult, that cursed their parents. And the idea is a death threat. A death threat. Something along the lines of, I call down death and or eternal destruction upon you. That's pretty severe, right? To say that to your mom or your dad. So severe that in the eyes of God it was so wicked and so opposite really of the respect he mandated in the fifth commandment to honor our mothers and our fathers. Uh, he said this is an absolute must. It made his top ten list of things that uh, a society had to do. That children had to honor their mothers and fathers. It was so wicked if a child cursed with a curse against their parents that they would die, that God again classified it as a capital offense. Now, in Deuteronomy 28, verse, uh, verses 18 to 21, you can turn there. It states that the parents, listen to me now, even though God mandated if a child, and I'm thinking of an older child uh, like a uh, a teenager, but even those even older, uh, you know, in their early 20s, uh, maybe into their early 30s, uh, someone who is an adult, all right? But if they curse their parents, even though God said it brought with it a death sentence, the parents, listen to me, were not authorized by God to kill their child. Not like it is in Muslim society. Honor killings are very prevalent in Muslim culture. And mostly it's the poor daughters. I mean, in, in that culture, I'm not saying all Muslim families, but uh, in those cultures where Sharia law is very big uh, and all, honor killings are, a, it's a badge of honor. If, uh, you know, you, uh, your sister does something that dishonors the family, and pretty much they can find anything, and you as a brother kill her, well, in that culture you're looked upon as a hero. It's terrible. What this, Islam is the most misogynistic faith, I think, on the planet. These poor women under Islamic Sharia law have no rights. Uh, they're treated horribly. I, we even see the beginnings of this in the United States. I've seen on the news several instances where a daughter of the Muslim faith, uh, you know, in America now, falls for a, a young guy at school who's an American, 
who's not a Muslim and uh, start seeing him and the parents find out about it. Uh, I just saw one uh, not long ago where they lured her home uh, under some pretense and when she got home, uh, the mother held her down and the father uh, killed her, stabbed her in the chest repeatedly. In God's economy, there were death sentences that uh, for a behavior of a child towards a parent, but the parents were not allowed to carry out the death sentence. It had to be the courts, and I say courts, I mean the elders of a city who were the judges. In Deuteronomy 21, verse 18, we read, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who, when they have chastened him, will not heed them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city. Those would be the judges now of the city. To the gate of his city. The gates of the cities where the elders sat. That was the uh, town hall. Uh, really the municipal center where, uh, where, the, uh, where justice was meted out. Verse 20. And they shall say to the elders of his city. Uh, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. So the drunkard implies now we're talking about somebody probably in their 20s at least. So not a young kid. This would never be uh, you know, a young kid. 10, 12, whatever. Uh, it was always an older adult child. Uh, verse 21, Then all the men of, the, of his city shall stone him to death with stones. That's if the elders uh, go ahead and rule that he should be stoned after they listen to the evidence. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones, and you shall put away the evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. You say, well, that's pretty harsh. Okay, yes. I don't really know how much they actually carried this out, okay? I mean, from what I understand, the judges in Israel rarely, if ever, administered the... I mean, the guy had to be pretty bad, okay? Um, but from what I understand from history, rarely do the judges of Israel uh, carry this law out and actually have... Uh, but it was on the books, right? Every kid knew it was on the books, Okay. So, you know, you better keep your nose clean. You better not start giving your mom and dad too much of a heart. They might drag you before the elders, and who knows what will happen is the idea. But uh, at very least, though, uh, even though they might not have meted the death penalty on him, they probably gave him a break. But um, he was punished in some way. We're not told other ways that the, the young person was punished. But uh, there were obviously consequences if the elders decided, look, we're not going to kill this guy, but... He's going to have to do whatever, community service or whatever it might be. I don't know. Verse 18. If men contend with each other, and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and he does not die but is confined to his bed, if he rises again and walks about outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted. He shall only pay for the loss of his time and shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. Now look. God never wanted his people to settle their differences with violence. In fact, Proverbs 15, verse 1, God admonishes a soft word. When somebody is yelling at you, a soft word turns away wrath, right? God wanted his people to settle their differences uh, in, a, in a verbal, nonviolent way. However, we all know how that goes. In the heat of a moment, anybody, in the heat of a moment, anyone uh, can, can lose their cool. And uh, if that happens, they can take uh, a stone or a stick or even their fist and uh, hit a person. 
Now, God is saying if that person that they strike dies, then the person who struck him shall also be put to death. Because in verse 23, God said, you shall give life for what? For life. If the person that was struck makes a full recovery, or made a full recovery, uh, then the person that struck him was also then spared from the death penalty. But he had to pay his victim's medical expenses and uh, loss of wages while he was recovering and couldn't work. That was a form of punishment. That was a form of punishment, monetary retribution. You know, guys, if everyone in our society was made to financially compensate a person for the injuries they inflicted on them, I think hockey games would finish a lot of people off financially. <laughs> but if everyone in our society who loses their cool and, you know, takes it out on somebody and strikes them or whatever, if they were made to pay for that person's medical expenses and for any loss of time that they couldn't work, you would have a lot fewer hotheads doing their thing. I, you know, I look at these laws and I go, Lord, right on. These are so just. It's amazing. Verse 20. And if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished. So the idea is if a master is disciplining one of his slaves and he goes too far, he kind of loses it and the slave dies, the master was to be punished. Now, we're not told in what way. Uh, it doesn't seem that he is to be punished with death. It was probably a punishment determined by the, the judges, the city fathers, some kind of punishment. Verse 21, notwithstanding, if he, the slave, remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished, the master shall not be punished, for he is his property. Look, what God is saying is, if a slave that is beaten by his master doesn't die for a day or two uh, after the beating, then the master is not to be punished. Obviously, he didn't intend to kill the slave. Uh, if he had, he would have killed him right on the spot. He just beat him more than probably he should have, obviously, uh, but was an accident. He didn't mean to kill him, and so the master was not to be punished. Uh, first of all, let me just say this. It wouldn't make sense for a master uh, to kill his slave because slaves cost a lot of money. You had the cost of purchasing the slave in the first place. Then you had the income that came to you through the slave's work or labor. I mean, it was not good business practice to abuse your slaves and especially to kill any one of them because then you would lose or the master would lose the income that slave would produce. I'm not saying it never happened. I'm just saying it was probably not as common as we might think. I'm sure masters lost their tempers and beat their slaves, sometimes injuring them. Uh, if the slave recovered, the master wasn't to be punished, as we said. Uh, the loss of income he incurred while the slave was recovering and couldn't work was punishment enough. Now listen to me. I realize it's hard for us to read these things uh, since we're a nation that has abolished slavery and we see slavery in terms of always being evil. And we've touched on this, I think, last time where we're not condoning slavery. You have to understand in ancient cultures, they did not have the social programs. They did not have the financial safety nets. They were not as evolved socially as we are today. Slavery would never be allowed today because people have access to government programs and government help. In those days, if you couldn't pay your debt, 
you would have to be sell yourself into slavery, like an indentured servitude, to work it off. And as we said, not every slave owner was a bad guy. We think slavery is evil, always evil. Well, if it was always evil, God wouldn't have put a provision in his law that said, if after you've worked your time as an indentured servant or a slave, but your master was so kind, such a good master, that you wanted to be his slave for the rest of your life, they had a whole, had a whole procedure that they would follow to become a bond slave, a voluntary slave for life. Remember, to be somebody's slave for life, if he was a tremendously kind, gracious master, he took good care of you, he, was, he wasn't a kind of guy who would beat you, he gave you a nice place to live and good food to eat, it was a job for life. Back then, you know, if you were out of work, you starved to death if you couldn't find work or whatever. To hook up with a wealthy man who would basically let you live in his house and you would serve him the rest of your life, they called it slavery. Today, it's not a bad setup, although you were the property, obviously. I'm not, you know, but I'm just trying to help you to see that, you know, we read these things and we're appalled, aren't we? But God said, look, in the early days of his people's existence as a nation, he understood that certain things were going to happen. Slavery was going to be a part of the culture. And to forbid it actually would be detrimental on a lot of people who couldn't find work, maybe, who would starve to death. So God allowed it, regulated it. But eventually, as societies evolved like ours, then uh, it went by the wayside. So I know this is extremely distasteful to read about uh, laws regarding slaves and all, but uh, understand where God was coming from here. Verse 22. If men fight and hurt a woman with child, so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished according as the woman's husband imposes on him, and shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This law is interesting for a couple of reasons. First of all, it holds accountable those who cause pain and suffering accidentally. Now, we live in a culture where if it was an accident, I should be released of all responsibility. That's not how God saw it. One pastor had this to say on the subject. He said, and I quote, Imagine a, a barroom brawl in which one man hurls a chair at another. The intended target ducks, however, and a pregnant woman is hit. If she miscarries or gives birth prematurely, the perpetrator shall be punished. But if the woman dies, the perpetrator will be killed. Again, God is elevating the status of women for, although her death was an accident, it was to be treated as first-degree murder, end quote. So God had a very high view of women back then, and he had a very high view of the unborn, all right? Today, this principle would apply clearly. We'll say to a guy who gets drunk, gets behind the wheel of his car, and injures another person. I didn't mean to do it. Well, I can argue that, with that. Did you mean to get drunk? Because if you meant to get drunk, well then, you know, anything after that, even though maybe you didn't get into a car with the intention of hitting somebody, well, you still did it. 
In the eyes of God, even though it was an accident, that person is guilty and responsible to make restitution of the person injured. And secondly, it implies that if the unborn child suffers or dies because of someone, we'll say again like a drunk driver, who accidentally hits a pregnant mother, that man is held accountable for the baby's life. That means, guys, in the eyes of God, the unborn child, listen to me, is a person, is a person with rights and not just a blob of tissue that can be hurt or killed without consequence. God had a very high view of the unborn. I flew back from, um, I think it was California, a couple years ago. Sat next to a young doctor, nice guy. Uh, showed me all kinds of pictures of his trips. They like to travel, him and his wife. And we got on the subject of abortion. And uh, he was pro-abortion. And I said, well, you're a doctor. When else can life begin but at conception? He said, well, I don't know. I'm not willing to say that. Of course he's not, because he's pro-abortion. You're not going to say life begins at conception, because then to abort a child is murder. And they're not going to go there. So, you know, I said, well, then when does life begin if not at conception? Well, I'm not sure. Well, don't you think you should err on the side of caution? Because, you know, if it does begin at conception, then every child that is aborted is a murder. And I believe it is. I believe it is. In God's eyes, that child is a living human being with all the rights of any one of us. God did not make any distinction between the born and the unborn. That child in that woman's womb was not a blob of tissue. It was a living human being. And uh, to hurt or kill that child, God said, you are accountable. But even in our nation, a nation that doesn't know what end is up a lot of times anymore, I have seen this. We're a conflicted country. I have seen this applied to, we'll say, again, a drunk driver who hits and kills a pregnant woman and her child. He is often charged with the deaths of two people. Now, those who are pro-abortion, that makes them very uncomfortable because they know if you charge a man with killing a human being who is in the mother's womb, well, then they believe that it's not, you know, you're declaring that the, the unborn is a person, and they're trying their best to say it's a blob of tissue. Of course, ultrasounds have gone a long way in disproving that. I think ultrasounds have brought a lot of pro-abortion people over to the pro-life side because you watch an ultrasound of a baby playing, sucking its thumb, and so on. In its mother's womb, it's pretty hard to say it's a blob of tissue and not a human being. I've also seen our courts at times hold pregnant women responsible for killing their unborn children, unintentionally, of course, but because of their drug use, they wound up killing their unborn child and were charged with murder. And yet, if that same woman, this is where we are conflicted, if that same woman had gone to an abortion clinic and had them terminate her pregnancy, not only will the state pay for it, but they would probably applaud her as being a brave woman who made a tough decision, but the right decision, to terminate her pregnancy because she was not in a place emotionally or physically to raise a child because of her drug issues. America, again, is a nation of conflicting beliefs and values. 
feels that it has the right to determine, listen, when life begins and what lives are viable and worth seeing as human beings and those that are not. However, God does not give us that right. We are not allowed to play God. We are not allowed to say, here's when life begins. You have those who are actually advocating passing laws that say life doesn't technically begin until two or three days after birth, so we have time to evaluate whether the child should live. It's handicapped or Down syndrome. So you actually have people now pushing for the state to come in with laws that say, you know what, uh, we should wait a few days before, you know, before we uh, grant personhood to a newborn. So we have time to evaluate playing God, if that child deserves to live. I'm telling you, God will not let us play God and the blood of 60 million. If the blood of Abel cried out to God after Cain killed him from the ground, if the blood of Abel from the ground cried out to God, what is the sound like of 60 million, the blood of 60 million babies since Roe v. Wade to the present day what must that sound like in the ears of God? And I guarantee you, he is not going to let this country slide on judgment for those lives. One commentator put it this way, said, and I quote, Another implication of this case is that a fetus is a person who deserves special protection. The law of God imposed strict penalties on anyone who harmed an unborn child. It treated the injury of an unborn child the same way it treated the injury of any other human being. By this standard, performing an abortion is an act of murder, for which the proper penalty is life for life, verse 23. To put it bluntly, abortionists deserve the death penalty. It should be emphasized that this is a sentence no private individual ever has the right to execute. It's not up to us to take vengeance on those who are taking children's lives through abortion. That's not our place. God does not sanction vigilante justice. So, you know, sometimes somebody who calls himself a Christian will kill an abortion doctor. That is an unrighteous act. If you're pro-life, you're pro-life. And you don't kill anyone, except as we're going to see if we have time, those who have broken into your house intending to kill you. Then you should stand up for protecting your family and so on. But he goes on to say that uh, killing a doctor who performs abortion is also murder because only the proper authorities have the right to use deadly force. Nevertheless, the proper legal category for abortion is murder with all the penalties that apply, never in, private, in a private vendetta, but as a matter of public justice, end quote. Well, that changed when the Supreme Court uh, said abortion was now legal. Now, let me just say this to you. There are times when the laws of man coincide with the laws of God. In fact, our nation was founded on the laws of God, and they were written into the laws of our nation. But as we have moved away from God, many of those laws have been overturned. And now we have a situation where what is legal with regard to the laws of man is illegal with regard to the laws of God. And guess whose court reigns supreme? So it doesn't matter what man says is right or wrong. If it contradicts what God has said, guess what? It's always wrong to do something God has forbidden. I don't care what the courts say. Sure, 
They can rule any way they want. Unjust judges have always been. And they will stand before the judge of the whole earth someday and give an account. And he will, he will bring justice upon them. Verse 23. But if any harm follows, okay, I mean, if uh, the baby does die uh, because of some irresponsible action uh, of another, if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Again, I have often wondered how much better our society would be uh, to live in if these laws were in operation today. I really mean that. And yet Jesus told his people not to seek the punishment of those who wrong us, even if it's our legal right to do so. Turn to Matthew 5. Just because legally we can push to have somebody punished who has wronged us, who has broken the law against us in some way and has wronged us or hurt us, even though it's our legal right to have them prosecuted and, and punished, Jesus encourages us to um, take a different route. And I won't read the whole section. I'll just read a couple of three verses. Matthew 5, starting at verse 38. He said, You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now that was justice. That was God's justice. Verse 39, But I tell you not to resist an evil person. He was talking about, not talking about if an evil person breaks into your house and wants to hurt you and your family. That, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about just in your dealings with people, okay, on a regular, just regular basis. If somebody wants to put you down, if somebody wants to defame your character, uh, so on and so forth, okay, uh, don't retaliate. Don't seek to get into the mud with them and go at them and so on and so forth. He said in verse 44, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So in the New Covenant, guys, the Old Covenant, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, New Covenant, uh, Jesus says, look, show mercy, forgiveness, love, because that in that way you will be uh, manifesting the character of your Father in heaven. All right? And uh, just, just a little side note. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees were teaching that, you know, if you were out working and um, in the field or whatever and uh, your, your neighbor was working alongside of you and, and he was using the sickle, we'll say, to cut down the grain and he brings the thing back and the, and the wooden part of the, the handle in some way uh, knocks you in the mouth and knocks a tooth out. The rabbis said, they taught, you had to have your neighbor's tooth knocked out. The law says, you have to have their tooth knocked out. Jesus, you don't have to have their tooth knocked out. Just because they knock your tooth out, it's your legal right. But you don't have to pursue your legal right. You can show them mercy and kindness and forgiveness. Because in that way, you're being a witness. All right? You're being a witness to them. And um, Jesus taught that we, when wronged or physically injured, should extend again mercy and forgiveness to the person as a witness of God's love. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6? He says, Now therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law, to court, against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not uh, rather let yourself be cheated? And Paul is saying, Look, I know that you guys have legal a legal basis for taking to court somebody who has defamed you, ripped you off, but any unbeliever can do that. 
why don't you rather allow yourself to be defrauded? Uh, as believers, we have the privilege of waiving our legal rights uh, to the glory of God by not demanding compensation at times. Now listen to me. Some Christians believe that because of what Paul said, we are forbidden from taking somebody to court. That's not true. There are times when we may have to take someone to court. Why don't you rather let yourself be defrauded? But there are times when, you know, it's not a matter of just my feelings or even a lump of money. There's other things involved. Like if you were hurt on the job, we'll say, and, you're, and your boss is trying to cheat you out of your workman's comp, well, that's money that you need for your family. It's okay, in my mind, you pray about it, do what you feel God wants you to do. But in that situation, I believe it's okay to take your employer to court because they're trying to cheat you out of the very thing that you need to provide for your family or your recovery. I, one guy came up to me after a service several years ago uh, as I was teaching on this, and he said, look, I know a couple who got divorced, was pretty heated divorce, and uh, they have a child, and they were supposed to have, you know, kind of joint custody, but she was keeping, or he was, one of them was keeping the child from the other, using the child against the other by not letting them see the, their child. And so he had to, I think it was, he had to take her to court to get his rights to see his child. Well, I agree with that too. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, you should never, uh, somebody should never keep you from seeing your, your children. Unless, of course, you molested them or something, but that that's wasn't the issue, all right? So there are times, and I, you have to let God lead. It's just that, you know, we have the privilege of saying, you know, even though I could take it to court, you wronged me, you did this or that, I'm not going to do that, I'm a Christian. And God tells me, you know, he's forgiven me for so much, I'm just going to forgive you and I'm going to let it slide. That's a witness. It's quite a witness. Verse 26. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant, now this will be a master, and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, or slave is the idea, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. Now, I personally believe that this law greatly diminished any physical abuse by a master toward his slaves. Because he knew if he really beat this slave and knocked the, the guy's tooth out, we'll say, he'd have to let the slave go free for the sake of his tooth or knocked an eye out, okay? If the slave incurred some kind of severe uh, physical harm or lasting handicap because of what his master did, God says, you have to let him go free. So I think that greatly diminished, because uh, every master, again, it was expensive to purchase a slave, and then the income that you got from the slave working for you, those were a great deterrent, and not, you, know, you didn't want to abuse your slave, because if you hurt him or her and they couldn't work, well, you lost the income, and so on. So I just believe God wrote into these laws certain things that would then keep masters from abusing their slaves. So guys, these have been laws against violence in different areas. That brings us to then, first of all, some animal control laws. Okay, Animal control laws. Verse 28, if an ox gores a man or a woman to death, uh, then the ox shall surely be stoned. And his flesh shall, be, shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. But if the ox tended to thrust with its horn in time past, and, uh, and it has been made known to his owner, 
and he has not kept it confined, so that it has killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. So today in our culture, we, we, we've all heard stories where uh, we'll say some guy owns a pit bull. And this pit bull has been known to go after people, okay? But instead of chaining the animal up when he's outside, he lets the thing come out of the house with him unchained. A neighbor's kid walks by. He goes after the neighbor's kid, mauls the, the kid, or even kills the child. In God's economy, both the dog and the owner were put to death. You better believe that really caused people uh, to make sure their animals that were uh, a little testy, you know, animals that uh, had a bad attitude, uh, you know, you want to make sure that you were had uh, uh, chained them up or whatever so that they wouldn't get away and hurt somebody and all. Verse 30, if there is imposed on him a sum of money, then he shall pay to redeem his life whatever is imposed on him. Whether it has gored a son or gored a daughter, according to this judgment, it shall be done to him. So here's the idea. So a guy has an animal, and it's been known to kind of go at people. But he doesn't keep it locked up. He lets it roam, and it goes after somebody, gores maybe the head of a family, and kills him. The law says the animal and the owner should be put to death. But the family says, look, putting this guy to death isn't going to bring our loved one back. Look, this was our father. He was our provider. If the man will give to us a sum of money to compensate so our family can live, then we won't press for uh, capital punishment. And a guy could basically then uh, settle with the family, give them a, a sum of money and uh, to compensate them for their loss, whether it would be a father or a, a child, and uh, that way he would spare his life. However, guys, God did not allow someone guilty of premeditated murder to buy their way out of punishment. Numbers 35, 31, you don't have to turn there. But God said, Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. So look, if somebody died accidentally because your animal got at them and uh, killed them, you didn't mean that for that to happen. Life for life, that's true, but the family of the person that died could say, Look, we don't want you to die, but you need to give the family, our family compensation so we can live, right? But God says that never applies to somebody engaged in premeditated murder. A murderer could never buy their way out of their penalty because that was premeditated. It was a deliberate act. Verse 32, If the ox gores a male or female servant, he shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. It's interesting that Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a gourd slave. Verse 33, And if a man opens a pit, or if a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls in it, the owner of the pit shall make it good. He shall give money to their owner, but the dead animal shall be his. So, you know, you're digging a, it's a cistern, no doubt. A cistern was a big hole in the ground that would catch rainwater. If you, weren't, if you didn't live near a, a spring or a stream or a body of water, you needed water to survive. So they would dig these cisterns, big holes in the ground, okay, underground holding tanks with an opening on the top, and they would usually make uh, channels 
that led into the opening and it would collect rainwater and every time it rained your cistern would then be would hold water well you're digging this thing right and it's almost done it's and they were pretty deep sometimes okay and uh, you didn't cover the hole and somebody's uh, donkey falls or sheep falls in there and dies you had to pay the owner of the sheep but you got to keep the dead animal you had a barbecue that night okay so it wasn't all for naught you know you you all had a barbecue that day and uh, but god said you know again god is being very fair here verse 35 if one man's ox hurts another's so that it dies then they shall sell the live ox and divide the money from it and the dead ox they shall also divide uh, or if it was known that the ox tended to thrust in time past and its owner has not kept it confined, he shall surely pay ox for ox, and the dead animal shall be his own. So again, just talking about these different things that would arise uh, on a farm. They were all agrarian, agrarian culture back then. Verse 22, excuse me, chapter 22, verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore, listen, five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Now, I love this, all right? No slap on the wrist probation for a first-time offender. And neither does God's law allow for incarceration. You notice that? In God's judicial system, it was based, listen, not on incarceration, but on uh, retribution or restitution, I should say. God did not institute a legal system that um, relied on incarcerating criminals. The criminals were made to give restitution to the party that they had wronged or whatever. To me, guys, a much better system than ours. Our, our nation is the most incarcerated society in the world. With 2.3 million men and women in prison or in jail out of a population of 320 with a recidivism rate of between 70 and 80 percent. Interesting. You know why? For many criminals... Three hots in a cot isn't a bad deal. Get three hot meals. I get a place to stay, a bed to sleep in, not a bad deal. Uh, for a lot of criminals, jail is really no deterrent from keeping them from violating the law. In God's economy, if a person stole from someone, the Lord didn't just make that person return or replace what he stole animal for animal. He had to repay five oxen for the one he stole and four sheep for the one sheep he stole. It was a great way to deal with petty theft, or any theft for that matter, and create respect for another person's property. Again, we don't have this today. If somebody rips another person off, uh, often it's just probation, slap on the wrist. There really is no deterrent. But if that person had to work off that debt, and if you stole, we'll say, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, we don't see many sheep. I don't have any in my neighborhood, so oxen and sheep are not the issue. I don't know if somebody broke into your house and stole your uh, flat screen TV and had to repay five flat screen TVs for that one. Uh, maybe they would think twice. Okay, I don't know. I'm sure we could adapt this to common society, to our society today. Um, verse two. If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. If the sun is risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. Let me just stop there. Let me just tell you what God is saying now. 
God is saying that if a thief broke into a person's house at night and the homeowner killed him, the homeowner was justified and would not be charged with a crime, God is saying. However, if the thief broke into a man's house in broad daylight, the homeowner was not allowed to kill him, and if he did, he would have to pay life for life. Why? Because at night, the idea was at night, the homeowner wouldn't be able to tell in the darkness who the thief was or if he was armed or not. But in the daylight, the homeowner could tell if it was the neighborhood, neighbor's teenage kid, okay, uh, who had broken into his house trying to rip him off. Now, here's the idea. In Jewish culture back then, they believed in covenant communities where the whole community was a family. You had a covenant with each other that you were family. And if, you know, the next-door neighbor's teenager who was going through a kind of a rebellious period broke into your house, and in the daylight you knew it was the kid next door, you wouldn't want to kill him. He's a member of the family, the community family. You know, you would want to give extra grace. I mean, you okay, you know, you send him back over to his mom and dad and let them deal with him. So God is saying in the broad daylight, you could first of all tell uh, who the intruder was, but if he was a stranger, at very least, you could see if he had a weapon in his hand. And if he did not have a weapon in his hand, he didn't, was not intending to perpetrate a violent crime. He wasn't planning on murdering you, just robbing you. And therefore, God said, look, if he's not intending to murder or to do bodily harm, if he's just there to rip you off, we're not justifying it. But God is saying, look, that does not warrant the use of deadly force. In God's judicial laws... Uh, the punishment had to meet, uh, had to fit the crime. Uh, that's just, and, and of course, that was just the way it was. It was extremely fair. Um, of course, if a man broke into your house in the daylight and you had a, a, a knife in his hand, uh, well, that was a different story. The homeowner had a right to defend himself and his family using deadly force against an armed intruder. Uh, there's an interesting principle that emerges from this law. Interesting principle. With increased light comes increased responsibility. Now think about that. God lays down a physical law. If you have more physical light, then you have a greater responsibility uh, when you act. Okay? This also applies spiritually, though. Because in the Bible, God's word is likened to light. And the more light or truth a person has, the more God holds them responsible for. That's why I get very, very uncomfortable with some of the people in our church who have been coming to this church for years, who have sat listening to the teaching of God's word week after week, year after year, and I know they're not saved. I know they're not saved. Because Jesus said, the servant who did not know his master's will and did not do it, will be beaten with few stripes. But the servant who knew his master's will and did not do it will be beaten with many stripes. And he was basically talking about eternal judgment. If a person doesn't know what God has said, okay, they're still guilty. But God will punish them a lot less severely than the person who knows the truth, who sat under the teaching of the truth, the word of God, week after week, and yet has not submitted to it, has not given their life to Christ, has not adjusted their life accordingly to live according to what God has said, God will hold them much more accountable and deal with them much more severely in the day of judgment. So 
with increased light comes increased responsibility. But I want to just say this. This law gave God's people the right to self-protection without giving them the right to kill anyone that simply entered into their house or onto their property. Ownership of property didn't automatically give the homeowner power over another person's life who trespassed for any reason other than to commit a violent crime. Then and only then was deadly force acceptable to God. Guys, we could apply this again to the law, uh, apply this law, I should say, to the whole abortion argument. Those who are pro-abortion argue that as long as a child is in, uh, is in a woman's body, her personal property, that she has the right to kill that child whom God sees as another human being. But these folks believe that she has the right to kill that child whenever she chooses, listen, even if the baby is partially outside her body at the time. Partial birth abortion is got to be one of the most barbaric things a civilized society has ever allowed to take place. I don't know how a doctor could deliver a baby, and we're talking about a, a third trimester birth, where the head is exposed and they take a pair of scissors and plunge it into the back of the baby's neck, severing its spinal cord and instantly killing it, how you could think you could do that, and Almighty God will not bring wrath and, and judgment upon you someday. Listen to me. God will hold accountable on the day of judgment those legislators that passed laws making abortion legal, the mothers who pursued the abortion, and the doctors who performed the abortion, listen, if they don't repent and receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Isn't it awesome? that we serve a God who will forgive any sin as long as a person is sincere and they come to Jesus Christ, even if you have murdered someone or if you're a, a, a woman who in your past has had an abortion or two, we'll say. If you come to Jesus Christ and receive him as your Lord and Savior, he washes you of all sin. You're no longer a murderer in the eyes of God. You are now a child of God righteous and washed clean by the blood of our Savior. So yes, God will hold accountable those who murder. But there is forgiveness if a person, a murderer, comes to Christ and receives him as Lord and Savior. We are living in a country where our leaders have enacted laws that make murdering a, an unborn child almost a virtue. Turn to Psalm 94. Every time I read this psalm, I think of our lawmakers, Congress people, senators, and so on. Psalm 94, starting with verse 20, God says, Shall the throne of iniquity, which devises evil by law, the throne of iniquity is speaking of those in authority whether you're talking about a king or a congress, anyone in authority, and we're talking about a nation, those in authority of a nation that devises evil by law, passes laws that make evil, something that God has forbidden, lawful, like abortion, 
or gay marriage, etc. He goes on to say, shall the throne of iniquity which devises evil by law have fellowship with you? So you know what? I don't want to hear it. When our lawmakers, you know, uh, during like 9-11, when they all got together on the steps of uh, the Capitol, and we're all singing, you know, God bless America, you think God looked down and said, oh, that's touching. That's sick in the heart of God. God bless America. You better pray God doesn't judge America. We are deserving of it. All those people who think they are serving I don't know what they're thinking. I really have stopped trying to get inside their head. It's too scary to climb in some of these people's heads and see what they justify. Things that God has absolutely forbidden. That other generations have said flat are totally evil. How can these who devise iniquity by law have fellowship with you, Lord? They gather together against the life of the righteous. Aren't they doing that now? Christianity is going to be outlawed soon. We're going to be prosecuted. It'll start with guys like me for speaking out against homosexuality or abortion. They've gathered together against the life of the righteous, listen, and condemn innocent blood. That would be children aborted in their mother's wombs. But the Lord shall cut them off in their own wickedness. The Lord our God shall cut them off. Their day is coming. And I pray they repent. I would not want to be in the shoes of some of these legislators who are passing laws that violate so much of what God has said. They will stand before him someday and give an account. Verse 3, So if the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. He should make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. So if the thief was, is caught is not able to pay back what he stole. The thief was sold uh, as an indentured laborer with the money from the sale going to the victim. And then he had to work until he paid off the value of what he had stolen. So if he stole an ox, he would have to work off five oxes. Verse 4, if the theft is certainly found alive. So the animal he steals is found alive in his hand. Whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall restore double. So if a thief was caught red-handed, okay, uh, so that the owner's animal was returned to him immediately and unharmed, the thief then would have to pay double. And I think, I'm assuming what that means is he would have to give back the animal he had stolen plus another one of the same kind. Um, why was this a lesser judgment if a person was caught red-handed Then if he was not caught red-handed, and verse 1 tells us had to restore five oxen for one and four sheep for one he stole. Why was this a lesser penalty? Probably because the owner didn't have to take time away from his schedule to go out and find another animal to replace the one that was stolen. Apparently in God's economy, uh, time was money. Verse 5, if a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed and lets loose his animal... And it feeds in another man's field. He shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. Look, in a civilized society, personal responsibility and respect for another person's property are absolutely essential. And these are laws that God enacted that really helped to drive this home. You know, I mean, if your animal was out grazing in your field 
and it wandered over into your neighbor's field and began to eat your neighbor's field, you know, it wasn't like, whoops, sorry. You had to let his animal graze in the best of your field or give to him some of the best of your field, you know, as a kind of a compensation. This way, God was reinforcing responsible behavior and respect for another person's property. Um, verse 6, if fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that stacked grain or standing grain or the field is consumed of your neighbor, he who kindled the fire shall surely make restitution. So you get the idea. You're outside on your property on a beautiful fall afternoon burning leaves. Get a little carried away with the lighter fluid. The fire gets out of control and goes over to your neighbor's field and burns his standing grain or his stacked grain. You, you had to make good on that. You had to make restitution. Today, people say, well, it was an accident. I didn't mean to do it. I shouldn't be held responsible. God didn't care if it was an accident. He only cared that because of something you did, another person suffered, therefore you got to make it good. Today, this idea that, you know, well, it was an accident. Well, it was an accident. Oh, then don't worry about it. Well, guys, it doesn't matter if it was an accident. If you did something that was irresponsible and another person suffered, you need to make it right. I tell you, it promoted a lot of, you know, responsible behavior. All right, let's stop there. We'll have to pick it up next time in verse 7 of Exodus 22. And um, just looking at these laws. Now, we are going to begin to pick the pace up because as we move from the section of the giving of the law, to the building of the tabernacle. I say we're going to move quicker. I'm not so sure as I think about it now. Uh, we'll see. Careful what I say. That's true. I've gotten myself in trouble more than once saying we'll get pick things up a little bit. But uh, uh, I just, as I read God's laws for society, I'm just amazed at how utterly fair they are. How utterly fair they are. And how they really kept people in a place where um, they respected each other's property, they acted responsibly, and so on. And uh, we, uh, should, we could really learn some lessons from studying what God has said in our culture. So we'll uh, continue on next time. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, how you are the great lawgiver, and your laws are absolutely just and righteous. And Father, we praise you. Because we see in these laws uh, how righteous you are. We just pray, Lord, that even though we are not under civil laws, we can certainly learn a lot from these laws and how we are to behave. Because we're under a greater law than the law of Moses, and that is the law of love. And loving our neighbors should cause us never to act irresponsibly toward them or try to hurt them in any way. But uh, we should always put them above them ourselves, uh, esteeming them uh, more important than us, and, uh, and, and, and that way being uh, just a good witness. So, Lord, thank you. We just pray you continue to bless these studies in your word. In Jesus' precious name, amen. amen.